0: It's Tyre Power's Big Footy Final Sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy 3 and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Tyre Power's Big Footy Final Sale can't last. Visit tyrepower.com.au now. On 882 6BR, Inspiring Stories for Barra and Oday, generations of excellence since 1888.
1: Well, hello, my name is Tim McMillan. It's my great privilege to welcome you to another edition of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Bower and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Uh, On tonight's episode, Susanna Carr. She's been bringing us the day's news alongside uh, Rick Arden on Channel 7 since 1985. 1985. She's an accomplished journalist, a presenter, a guest speaker, and a truly inspiring story, a truly inspiring West Australian. Sue, welcome. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> um, look, I've just gone through uh, some of your uh, your uh, your your attributes, then your 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 career. Um, but let's talk about the incredible feat um, you've been on air with Rick for what thirty three years now. It, yeah, we've been that re- is that is phenomenal.
2: That's right. We've been reading together since January nineteen eighty five, and of course, I was at the ABC for ten years before that. So, mm. in broadcasting now for forty three years, dare I say it? It's, oh, it's unheard possible? of. And, you know,
1: people will be thinking that's longer than you get for a murder sentence. That's longer <laughs> than a lot of marriages last. Um, what's been the secret to your longevity together?
2: I think the fact that we're very, very different. Uh, we both have a real dedication to the job, but in mm. different ways. And we both have different interests. And I think the fact that we are different means that we complement each other rather mm. than Uh, being too much the same and we both enjoy communication and if you don't enjoy communicating, then don't be in television or don't be in radio and and I I love talking to people and I love telling stories and I love news. I love news. You you
1: still get a kick out of it
2: after all these years? First thing I do in the morning, get up, put on a pot of tea and start reading the day's news from all around the world and, Mm. of course, in these days it's so much easier than it used to be. But I'm fascinated by it. And because we have such a, a small exposure to it in our bulletin at night, it's great to actually know all the huge background behind things as yep. well. Yep. And you've been in the industry yourself so long too. You know what it's like. It's very addictive. There's no in-tray and out-tray. It just goes on and on and constantly surprises you, appalls you. Um, every emotion in news, every it emotion. Is.
1: When, you, when you're not sort of tapped into it, you, you feel like you're somehow disconnected from the world, don't you?
2: You do. But doesn't it also make you more interested about the world too? Because certain things happen in the world. I mean, I remember, for example, when we had the tsunami, most of us didn't know a lot about tectonic plates. Mm. All of a sudden we start to talk about tectonic plates in the news mm. and people start to understand the construction of the of the globe and, and how things work. And And that happens with so many stories. You read a story about a country you don't know much about. And if you've got a brain like mine, you go, well, I need to know a bit more about that country. So you start researching that country and all of a sudden your interest is piqued in something mm. else. Yep. You know, when, when North Korea started to get into the headlines a long time ago, I started reading books about North Korea to find out more about this bizarre country, mm. uh, the only country in the world where there aren't lights on at night. And, mm. and when you look at the uh, the flight radar twenty four app that's on your phone and no you've planes <laughs> I do I do no, no planes fly over North Korea No So there are just it's just that news is just it wets your appetite for the world
1: It's sometimes frustrating too isn't it when you know so much and you want to jam <laughs> And as you've
2: much got a 30 seconds you story. haven't got time
1: to go into all this background but I know We'll talk about some of your amazing adventures uh, a little bit later but uh, take us back to 1985 um, you, you're starting at uh, at Channel Seven. Yeah. Uh, you paired up with Rick. If someone could have said to you in 1985, you'll still be sitting in the chair alongside Rick in 2018.
2: I wouldn't have even thought it was possible. <laughs> no. Life just life takes strange paths, and I would never have expected that path to continue as it has. Had having worked at the ABC for ten years, I thought that was quite a long time, and I probably thought. Maybe Channel 7 might be much the same, but 33 years is crazy to me. I don't. I just don't know how it happened. But when you enjoy something and it keeps on and you get a success behind you as well and people don't seem to want you to stop. And, and as I said, with news, it's different every day. Mm. So it's not like you're doing a monotonous job. It's You're doing something that is just so interesting mm. to you that, yeah, I would never have believed it.
1: Please don't be humble when you answer this question, but what do you think individually has been the secret to your success for so long?
2: Gosh, well, I hope it's my ability to communicate with people. And I always, when I talk to some of the younger journos at work, we talk about what makes a successful journalist, presenter, whatever. And it's all about contact and communication and engaging with people. And I always say, Remember to talk to the camera as though it's a friend. Don't Mm. talk to the camera as though there are 150,000 people on the other side, which there may be, but they're all individuals sitting in rooms of one, two or three people. Talk to the camera as though it's your friend and Mm. talk to the camera. Don't talk at the camera and tell the story.
1: It's changed so much, though. It Over has. that time, yes. Yeah.
2: It was very stilted. I look back at stuff of me, recordings of me at the ABC, and there's this rather pommy girl sitting there. I mean, not that, <laughs> not that I, I mean, I was born in England, but I grew up in Australia. But yeah. in the early days, very, very proper.
1: Oh, very, very stiff, Terribly almost proper. almost straight out of the BBC. Yeah, particularly at the ABC.
2: So much so, mm. in fact, you didn't get a job at the ABC in those days unless you had, had to that speak sort in that
1: of clipped. Sort you, of did, tone.
2: you did, you yeah. did. None of none of the local regional accents and things, and and now the BBC's changed as well. I mean, yeah. that's completely full of regional accents, and it reflects the community a lot more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll talk about some of your highlights uh, when you know when we get to them throughout this chat, but. Uh, you know, back in 1985, you, what 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 was it that tempted you from the ABC uh, to, ah. to Channel 7? Was it just an opportunity to work in a different environment or did you see new challenges ahead?
2: It was a whole collection of things because at that stage, the ABC was about to embark on a new venture called The National. Mm. They were going to move their news from 7 o'clock to 6.30. They were going to incorporate news and current affairs together. So you'd have a news story, then you'd have a current affairs investigation of the story, then another news story. To me, it was madness, absolute madness, because people want the facts first and they want the investigation later if they've got the time for it. And I thought this was just an in- an insane idea. I really did. And I was supposed to be doing that show with Peter Holland. The two of us were mm. slated to do it together. And at that point, the um, Channel 7 asked me to join them because they wanted to put a, a two-person news to air, so... That was the opportunity. It was the perfect timing.
1: Bet you're glad you accepted it.
2: I am. Best decision.
1: <laughs> now, can you settle an argument for me? I was arguing with my wife last night. Not arguing. We were, we were chatting. Susanna Carr's world around us. I remember it from, <laughs> oh, no. from, from my childhood. <laughs> yes. Saturday nights or Sunday nights?
2: Oh, Saturday, I think. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> it was. I still and, remember. And just that for the record, of... I didn't go to all those places and do all those things. I stood oh, in the see, studio and recorded did a link. Then. That was so the did magic of
1: television back in the day.
2: <laughs> my dad did too. And I said, Dad, when have I been out of the country to make all these programs?
1: <laughs> You've just ruined a lot of people's uh, you know, <laughs> memories from that time. No, I do. I have vague memories of, uh, of, of Saturday nights, straight out of the news, Susanna Carr's world around us. So thank you very much. It was Saturday night. <laughs> but... You didn't have to tell me you didn't go to those places. You just ruined that. (laughs) I should have known. I did a couple of them. (laughs) We'll talk about that soon too. We're going to get uh, into uh, how you got to Channel 7 and then those early days of Channel 7 and what's happened in TV over three-plus decades. My special guest for this edition of Inspiring Stories, Susanna Carr, back with more in just
0: a moment here on 882 6PR. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day. WA's family-owned funeral directors. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. And welcome back to this edition of Inspiring Stories.
1: Susanna Carr is my special guest. Uh, Susanna, thanks again for your time. Can you take us back uh, to the ABC firstly? Um, We've just spoken about 9.85 being when you started at, uh, at Channel 7, but... The ABC in the mid 70s, what was that like?
2: It was very male. Yeah.
1: Uh, Flared pants, (laughs) knitted jumpers. It
2: was, yes, it was.
1: Um, Lots of beards. There were. I'm hmm. I'm really going to the stereotype here. I think
2: Ian Cameron might have had a beard at one point. (laughs) When I got there, I I thought, my God, are all announcers six foot five? Because I walked in (laughs) and there was Ian Cameron, Greg Pearce, Peter Newman. Gosh. um, and Dennis Committee was there as well. Yep. And all these giants were everywhere. But I went into an announcing staff. That's where I started in mm-hmm. radio, uh, an announcing staff of 17 men. Yep. There were no women. Wow. There were no women on radio and there were no. there had been one woman who had been with them since the war – Whose name was Phyllis Hope Robertson, and she retired shortly before I got there. There were no women on radio, and there were no women in television, and there were, there had been no woman read the television news to that date in in the on the ABC anyway. Trailblazer, yeah,
1: <laughs> mm. well that, that's something to be very proud of.
2: <laughs> well, it's good, but it's so funny when I look back on it because people when it was when I'd started reading radio news for a while, and people said, "Well, why can't she read television news?" And somebody actually said. But will people take it seriously if a woman reads wow. reads the news? And in those days, people said things like that.
1: I'm sure they did. And, and they went unchecked. Yeah, they really Wouldn't did. Wouldn't get away with it these days, would you? The
2: pay was equal, though, I
1: have to say. Well, that's good. <laughs> One of the perks of being at the ABC, I suppose. I
2: suppose so, yeah. Um,
1: did you always want a, a career in, in media and journalism? I never wanted a career in media and journalism. Really? It was a total surprise to me. Just happened. Yeah, I was supposed to be what, an artist. What did you want to be when. You- an architect. An
2: architect. Very, I geared everything. George Costanza
1: of you. <laughs> I suppose yeah.
2: so, yeah. I geared everything towards being an architect. And, and I've told the story a number of times, but there was a very mm, misogynistic dean of architecture at UWA at the time who had basically said that no woman would ever graduate while he was there. And most women who went through ended up going somewhere else to finish their degrees. So you studied...
1: Architecture.
2: I applied you for applied it. You applied for it. And I had a scholarship. In those days, there were scholarships. And he told me my marks weren't good enough, which I thought they were. And I went away with my tail between my legs and thought, what the hell do I do now? Mm. And I, I did a year of law, which was a complete disaster. Then went to arts. Then decided to go back to architecture through the tech system. And um, and went through there, and that's when on one day I was looking through the paper and I saw an advertisement for radio announcers at the ABC. And why? And you thought why I can, was I, I looking? I can speak good. <laughs> <laughs> I like debating and you know all that sort of stuff. I did all of those things at school, and and I I babysat for a man who lived down the road who compared the ABC's then version of the seven thirty report. Right, a man called Tony Evans. And I remember going down to him and talking to him and he said, look, all the things that you like at school, you liked at school and everything, all geared towards you enjoying this as a career, give it a go. So I did. Mm. And 120 people went for the job and I didn't get it and nobody did. And they called me back six months later and I got the job. And it had never been in my radar at all. Wow. I don't think think many people thought of being television newsreaders or... Presenters in those days, because there weren't many jobs, and it wasn't something particularly mainstream, and there weren't many stations, mm. and television was different.
1: Mm. So, if you'd shelved the architecture dream, yeah, what was going to take its place?
2: Well, I hadn't, I hadn't shelved you it. You were just one I, of those I, drifting I've gone uni back students
1: because. <laughs> course, uni, uni education was free then, wasn't it? So you well, could just after I go lost, from after
2: I lost to my scholarship when I failed law. Oh. <laughs> I then yeah, they, they then so I think they then brought in free uni, but I had to pay for a while. But yeah, um, yeah I
1: went. I imagine you've paid off your hex step by now.
2: Uh, <laughs> thank God they didn't have them then. How awful is that?
1: <laughs> oh. uh, so the ABC, and then that uh, that kept you going for ten. It odd did. Years.
2: It did because I started in radio, moved into television, and the great thing about the ABC is it's a wonderful grounding mm-hmm. place. You yep. learn so much. You learn so much from the people around you, and it was a, a great a great place to be. It was a lot wilder then than it is now. A few of us who were there at the time would have some stories to tell.
0: <laughs> we might have Life to is very this clinical. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Life very clinical and, and and correct now.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> it wasn't then. <laughs> no, I can imagine. Um, like a lot of particularly young aspiring journos, uh, uh a horrible event becomes almost the making of, of the journal. Yeah. And I understand for you, Cyclone Tracy was, was one of those occasions.
2: Well, it was because I'd only been at the ABC for a couple of weeks and I was rostered onto Christmas Day because I was a newbie mm. and therefore I should pay my dues. And Cyclone Tracy hit. Mm. So we were broadcasting to the whole of the Northwest because we, they were only listening through shortwave radio because all their normal communications had been knocked out. Mm. And it was a pretty dramatic time, as you can imagine. And then we also had some of the announcers from Darwin come and work at, in Perth because there was nothing. Mm. Darwin was completely shattered, wiped mm. out. There was nowhere to go, nowhere to live, nowhere to work, nothing.
1: Was it a moment like that that uh, that I suppose stayed with you and 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 gave you that drive to say this is this is what I want to do?
2: Well, it, it was pretty early in the piece, and to be honest, I then sort of. <laughs> I, my career in the first year and a half was a little bit difficult. I wasn't sure whether I should be there or not. Things didn't seem to be falling into place. They didn't seem to be clicking. And then I had an aha moment. Mm. And all of a sudden it all made sense and I knew where I was going and that was it. But Ste- it took about 18 months.
1: It's stepping into such a male-dominated arena though, Yeah. Um, w- was there anyone there to, to take you under their wing or mentor you or, or give you some... Unbelievable advice that uh, that set you on your way.
2: Well, you know they were all so generous. I yeah. have to say, and a lot of the the tall ones who I spoke about <laughs> earlier were only probably a few years older than me. Mm. Ian Cameron was amazing to mm. me when I was younger. Um, he was only about twenty three when I got there, twenty four maybe. Um, Peter Newman was incredible. The older guys, John Harper Nelson, and, and somebody that older people in Perth would know about. Um was amazing. He was amazing particularly because one day I was working with him and he left the studio and left me on my own and I had to mm. forge ahead. Mm. So, uh, yeah, they were all incredibly generous.
1: And so now, Sue, after decades more in the industry, do you find yourself taking on that, that mentor role as well for the younger journos that come through?
2: I suppose I do because I can help them with their presentation styles particularly. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously we've got senior journos who help them with the journalistic side, but when it comes to presenting news or actually just doing on the road stand-ups and things like that, I love helping them and they're so receptive to it. Everybody's so keen. And the great thing is these days people come in so well educated specifically Mm. for what they've got to do, even if they're straight out of college. Uh, like Whopper or somewhere or Curtin. We're very lucky
1: to have some yeah. excellent uh, university-level uh, courses. That, so uh, much so. At, at, at Whopper and, and Curtin.
2: And Murdoch. And, and Murdoch. They're, they're amazing because when I came through uni, there was there was nothing specific to media mm. at all. You nothing. just
1: made it up as you went.
2: And you learned on the job <laughs> you did. <laughs> the,
1: the journos that come through now, though, the demands on them, are uh, extraordinary, aren't
2: oh, they? Oh, and they rise to it so well. And, and every night we sit there in awe at their ability to do live reports. They're just astonishing. They really they really are mm. on top of it. And because of the industry the way it is at the moment, there's a lot of pressure on it financially, as you can imagine. So people have to work very, very hard. They work long hours. They come in in their own time. They come in in their days off when there's something. If a big story breaks, we're deluged with mm. with volunteers to, to help out, which mm. is great. And that's why we get such a good coverage of everything. Mm.
1: I suppose, yeah, when you are a young junior, as you would remember, uh, when big events happen, that's the that's the time to, to cut your teeth. For it absolutely
2: a is. And when things happen, and you know what it's like, when you're in the studio, being in the studio is great, but being in the studio when something's happening is exhilarating. Mm. And when you're covering something live, that is the best the best work feeling you can have. You come away from it with adrenaline, you're exhausted, but if you've done a good job, you feel so proud of yourself because you've worked (sighs) flying by the seat of your pants, I Mm. suppose. But that's when all the background knowledge and information comes in handy. So I always say to people, read, read, read voraciously. Make your mind a filing cabinet. So when you've got a story that breaks, you've got information in there. And if you're just wanting to sit there and read an cue machine, forget it. Because that day, there's going to be a day when, A, the machine might break down, or B, something happens that you need to keep following. Mm. And you've got to have information in your mind to actually better do that. Mm. And so you've just got to – it's not even research. It's just general knowledge and just making yourself receptive to the world.
1: And I suppose if you don't have that appetite to start with, then, then perhaps don't, it's, it's not, not, not the your right job for you exactly. in, the, in the first place. Exactly. You must have had a few uh, auto cue collapses over the years.
2: Uh, the best one I ever <laughs> had was at the ABC. We had these two fabulous guys who worked in in the studio. They were twins and they looked like pixies. <laughs> and one of them decided to auto use the auto queue machine one day, and he was three pages ahead of me. That was really helpful.
1: <laughs> Just so you could pre-read. Oh so my goodness! T- t- testing your memory.
2: <laughs> yeah, but we operate our own auto queue uh, for updates and things like that. That was a little. Uh, so it's all on you beginning. now. Yeah, but <laughs> for people out there, we don't, we don't know these stories off by heart. We are helped by this wonderful machine.
1: Yeah. We're going to uh, get into more of those defining moments, not necessarily uh, auto-cue cock-ups uh, that, uh, that you remember most uh, over your career, Susanna. So uh, we'll be back with more right here on 882
0: 6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since eighteen eighty eight. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors.
1: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Susanna Carr is our Inspiring Stories in this episode. Uh, So we spoke about uh, Cyclone Tracy earlier. Uh, Obviously, you've been out and covered some of the biggest events uh, that have happened globally uh, over the last few decades. Uh, It's probably a tough question, but can you pick out some of your... Your highlights, your, your defining moments. When I say highlights, they're not necessarily enjoyable, yeah. happy occasions. Unfortunately, that's such as the nature of, of news. But uh, what are the ones that really stick in your mind?
2: Well, I suppose the big overseas stories were the first one that we went to um, a group of uh, cameramen and a producer and I went to South Africa when Nelson Mandela was elected. Mm. And that was amazing to go to the first all race elections to spend time in Johannesburg, which mm. is a very dangerous city, as you know. and Um, But the atmosphere there, when you're there and people have never been recognised properly as people and they finally are... And people were queuing for three days to vote in peace and quiet. And can you imagine Australians queuing for three days? I mean...
1: We get cranky when there's no sausage at the, uh, <laughs> at the And we'd only
2: do that for tickets <laughs> for something. You know, we exactly. wouldn't queue for three days to vote. But these people were astonishing. And we went inside Soweto and met families who lived there and had most... Insp- I mean, talk about inspiring stories. Yeah. The number of families who were in there, particularly grandparents who'd taken on the care of their children because... There were major alcohol problems, drug problems with their families. And these older people who were uh, eking out a living, living in tiny places, were doing inspiring jobs with their own Mm. grandchildren. And talking to triple certificated nurses who were earning a tenth of what white nurses were earning, Mm. you know – Amazing situations there. It really was an eye-opening place to go at that time.
1: And a, and a great privilege being in your position and, and being able to experience that firsthand.
2: Yes, and I think also coming from Australia, which is a very equal, equal society, you don't go in with the prejudices that, that say, the Afrikaners and people who live there did. and. It quite shocked us, some of the attitudes of some of the whites in South Africa. Mm. Yes, we met some great ones, but we also met some pretty horrendous ones who you could just, you could see why the situation was as bad as it had been. Mm.
1: At the other end of the spectrum, Princess Diana's death and, and well, that was, going to the UK, that was just a... That was bizarre, I is...
2: yes. I remember, my, uh, I remember exactly where I was when I heard about it, and I remember talking to my mother on the phone, and she said, oh, maybe they'll send you to cover it. And I said, oh, don't be silly, they won't. Well, they did. And we spent a week there, uh, my cameraman, Bob Goodall and I, and wow, that was that was astonishing. I'd been to London many times, having been born in the UK and coming out to Australia when I was very small. And um, I'd never seen London like it. London was quiet. It mm. was depressed. There were grown men crying in the streets. And when that whole flower thing started at Kensington Palace, that was an absolute shock because mm. the flowers just the bank of flowers just grew and grew and grew and got further back and basically occupied the whole garden. And people were queuing again for days to sign the Book of Remembrance. And then when the funeral itself took place, the somberness of the whole mm. thing. I'd been in London once before when there'd been a major funeral for the for Lord Mountbatten when he was killed by the IRA. And not for work, but I just happened to be there and nobody does. Funeral processions like the British, they're amazing. And the solemnity of the whole thing was incredible. And uh, we ended up covering that, uh, the funeral procession, and my former news director from from Seven in Perth was then the news director in Sydney, a guy called John Rudd, wonderful man, and uh, he said, Oh, you all covered it so well. I think it will get you to cover the, the funeral, <laughs> leaving the leaving the church as well, and going out to the countryside. And so we ended up covering for hours and hours. And uh, it was again another case of having done as much research as you possibly could to cover you.
1: And I think uh, you know one of the things that uh, that people perhaps don't realise is that you know when you're there and you're so close to it, you you can't help it be affected by yeah. the emotions around you, and yet you've you've still got to maintain that distance. You do.
2: And, and it's and you know it's fine with the news. The story. When when you've got a news story, you can read it over and over and over again to try and acclimatize yourself to that story if it, if it's a particularly sad or distressing story. And the most distressing stories I find are about children yep. and animals. Mm. And though it's the helpless in society that you get most affected by. So you have to try and sort of lessen the impact on yourself. But nobody expects a newsreader to be an automaton. So mm. if you show some emotion, that's fine. But nobody also wants a newsreader who's lying on the desk howling and, and can't, over-emoting. Can't get to the end It's a measure. You've really yeah. got to do everything as a as a measure.
1: Well, you've obviously hit the mark over well, the hopefully. news because are still doing it. It got and, to the stage where top. I
2: covered so many funerals, it was, it was getting a little bit worrying that I was – Doing that too often because I got sent down to cover the Gracetown yep. memorial when we went down there and, and to do the whole commentary on that. And yes, you've got to be sensitive, but you don't want to become the person who is the automatic go to for every funeral.
1: Mm. I'm sure you get people say this to you from time to time, but, and I'm interested to know how you respond to it when people say to you, the news is so depressing. Yes. What What do you say to people? Well, I say
2: to that? them, unfortunately, it reflects life. And unfortunately, news... And we try and cover as many good news stories as possible. We are searching for them all the time. But news is what happens that's out of the ordinary. It's not the ordinary. The ordinary is 50 planes took off from Perth Airport today and none of them crashed. That's not a news story. The extraordinary is... One aircraft had major problems and had to make a forced landing. That's a news story. Mm. So it's things that are out of the ordinary and and mostly things that are out of the ordinary are of a more tragic nature. So that's why the balance is much more in that way. The world is the same. I mean, Mm. when the world just trots along happily, what do we talk about? (laughs)
1: People get restless.
2: Yeah, and then you get crazy people in the world, you know, launching ballistic missiles and doing things. That's news because it's not the norm.
1: Do you think media generally has got the balance right, though, between those unfortunate, sad events, tragic events and other things going on that are extraordinary in their own way, be it, you know, some fascinating scientific discovery or someone doing extraordinary things? Do Do you think... Media generally has got the balance right.
2: Well, I think we try. I think we're always trying to get the good stuff. Um, in the public's eye, definitely we're not getting it 100% right uh, because they would like some more good news stories. But there have been experiments over the, over the decades mm. of people having good news stations
1: and they don't survive. No, if, and, and, and people bombard your, your Facebook page or whatever saying that's not news.
2: Exactly. So <laughs> you, can't you, can't you can't win. You can't win.
1: Talking about fascinating assignments, though, tell us about your adventures to the Kremlin.
2: Oh, that was amazing. One day I'd, li- I'd like to write a book about that yeah, because well, there's a background story. I was going to ask that later. Are you too. going to? Well, gosh, so much happened on that trip. It really was amazing. I mean, we were, we were so lucky to be in there, but the situation that we got ourselves into was really quite bizarre as well, too, because – We actually turned up at the Kremlin with a crew to make the documentary and the first meeting we had with the Kremlin, the man who was organising the exhibition that was coming to Australia started talking to them and it became obvious to us that not everything was quite as it seemed or was quite as um, ironclad as it seemed. And the people in the Kremlin said, well, maybe you should go away and come back another day and we'll make the documentary. Another time we went, no, we need to make this now. So that was a little eye opening for Mm. us. And uh, but but it was amazing. We met incredible people. We had access right through the whole Kremlin compound into amazing buildings. We filmed in the in the museum after hours. And when you're walking through the carriage museum and there's Catherine the Great's carriage Mm. that she she rode nonstop in the middle of winter from Moscow to St. Petersburg in there it is sitting there. And you've got curators working on carriages with single strand brushes to get the actual Finish right. Um, There was so much there. We were also there in the middle of winter a week before Christmas, so it was freezing cold. It was 18 degrees below zero in Moscow and minus 30 at Sagaev Posad, Mm. which was outside of town. One thing that did happen to us is we nearly got – we had a near encounter with Georgian Mafia. Wow. Which was pretty astonishing.
1: <laughs> now, um, this would have made a good episode of Susanna Carswater It would have made a fabulous <laughs> episode.
2: And fortunately for us, when we were travelling outside of town, and in fact most places, we had two young off-duty policemen with us because you can hire them for security. Yep. And uh, we were in this, ca- this cafe on the way back from having filmed at this beautiful monastery. And the guys in the, uh, in the crew were having a drink with a guy called Johnny in the bar. And Johnny was plying them with champagne and drinks and vodka and everything. And the photographer and I, um, Francis Andrich was the photographer, we were in the little shop next door and we'd see all this going on and they said, come and join him, he's great, he's great. And we could see the young policeman looking a little bit strange. Mm. And he also had a man with him who was very muscular. And then we found out they were Georgian, which was a little worried. worrying. Then they started to make phone calls and they didn't speak Russian, they spoke Georgian. And the policemen started to get really concerned. And uh, we'd been promising to take photos of them and everything. And in the end, the policeman said, we are going now. We are leaving right at this moment. And the man said, oh, but, you know, you're going to take photos and I want to come and see you in Moscow. We gave them, fortunately, I was thinking on my feet, I gave them a false hotel that wow! We were look staying at you. At. I know. I've been reading all the books. Got I'm you, an adventure got your
1: 007 girl. <laughs> <on>. <laughs> well played.
2: And uh, when we got in the car and took off, eventually, um, the policeman said to us, "We have a feeling they were calling their friends to say there is a van of equipment. Yes, outside this cafe,
1: valuable equipment.
2: We are plying the guys inside with drinks. Come and steal all the equipment, and
1: we got away it would from have been there. An- Unfortunate phone call back to the oh. the bosses here in Australia. It I? would
2: have, and you know, we were so far outside of Moscow, in the middle of snow and winter, and no mobile phones. Yep. We could have disappeared in an instant. So yep. many, and when you when you start to read more about Russia, you know that could have Especially happened. Especially then. Then it was it was only a few years outside of the fall of communism, mm. so it was a very dangerous place to be.
1: I want to ask you as well, uh, just quickly, um, about uh, the role you played in what was Walkley Award-winning coverage uh, of the Limp Cafe siege—a so tragic event much closer to home and much more recent times. Um, just being a part of that as it was unfolding. Yeah, yeah,
2: that was an, a very unusual situation because uh, what had happened in Sydney is they had had to evacuate the Channel 7 studios in Sydney because they were across Martin Place from the Lint Cafe and the whole of Martin Place was evacuated. And so they had been broadcasting from the street and at about 10.30 at night, they or 9.30 or 10.30, they said that they were tired, they needed a break. Could we take over the coverage from Perth? Basically, we were babysitting it because we were going through normal programs at that point. The man was still in the cafe, but everything had gone quiet. And so we were jumping in and out of programming with updates and then all of a sudden it became obvious that something was going down and so we went live and the TRG was storming the building and um, so we covered it live for about two and a half, three hours I think and so I was in the studio. Chris Reason was the only man apart from the cameraman in the Channel 7 studios across the road because they had a great access point for police and everybody, as well as us,
1: became part of the, the action, most amazing didn't it? Part footage. Of the crime scene. Yes,
2: it really did. And Chris, uh, Sean Berry, our other reporter, was on the ground. So between the three of us, we covered for about three hours, mm. and that was an astonishing time was, to be. How was
1: the heart going then? It was I pulsating. For the I whole had a time. pulse
2: in my throat that was really going, but. It's just a matter of listening, getting the information. And what I was doing was also communicating between the two reporters because they were seeing different things. And so between the three of us, live on air, we were communicating to each other and to the whole Mm. of the country. Mm. And I know I've I've met people who were sitting up in Sydney watching Mm. the thing all night long. Mm. And I know our chairman was as well. Afterwards, I found out that he'd been absolutely riveted to Mm. his seat with the whole coverage. And, I mean, what a tragic outcome.
1: Oh, awful, awful, awful an, an awful moment and it must make it, it, it difficult. I mean, con- you know, you were obviously congratulated on, on winning a Logie. It, it's it's bittersweet though, isn't it, when you win a Logie for uh, or you're, you, you, you get some accolade um, I know. covering an event that is so tragic.
2: You wish it could be for something that was more joyful. Mm. Uh, but what we did was a, a great piece of journalism. Yes. And that's what we got the accolade yep. for. But the, the, the side part is that it is a tragedy. And most of the great stories that get covered
1: are such. Unfortunately. Mm. Uh, we're going to take a break, so but we'll be back with more
0: of uh, Inspiring Stories right here on 882 6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. And welcome back
1: to this edition of Inspiring Stories. Channel 7 news anchor Susanna Carr is my special guest. So you'd have to be one of the most recognisable faces uh, in, in town. I suppose it goes for the job. But does it yeah. ever get on your nerves when you, you're out in public and people just want to come up and tell you their own news story or, or get a photo?
2: Well... And only occasionally does it get to you. Usually, particularly the area where you live in, people get so used to you being around mm. that nobody pays you any more attention and I've got a very cute dog that sort of gets more attention <laughs> than I do anyway. Uh, but it's when you go to different areas where you don't live that it yep. happens. But I have to say, look, 98% of the time people are fantastic and really nice and non-intrusive.
1: Mm.
2: You get the occasional person who doesn't leave you alone and... Wants to sit at your table while you're really having dinner or something like that, but that is very rare. Mm. And I'm, hopefully, I sort of generate a reasonably happy, warm sort of feeling between people because that's that's what I get back. Mm. So it's not too bad. But mm. I mean, it is really nice going away on holiday and just blending in with the crowd. Where do you go?
1: A holiday. What, what's what's your, uh, your go-to place?
2: Yeah, well, my husband's mother lives in Cornwall in England. So, oh, beautiful. So we have to go there quite a lot because she's getting on in age now. And not that that's a chore because she's great and Cornwall is so beautiful. Mm. So that's, that's a go-to place. And then we add on somewhere else on the way back usually if we go away. So yep. I like to go to... I like to go to unusual places if I can. The most unusual we've been to recently was Uzbekistan. Wow, that was good. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty exciting. Uzbekistan. Yeah, <laughs> just went to look at the architecture. <laughs> did, and didn't have a look run around. into any
1: trouble like you did. Uh, did you
2: know it's one of the most safe, to- yeah. safe yeah. secure places you could go to? It's very um, drug-free, very high security, uh, incredibly clean. Um, yeah. Yeah. Total shock.
1: Fantastic! Now, when's great this buildings. book coming out?
2: What are you going to write? Oh this book? gosh, I don't know. I talk about that. I haven't even started it yet. I'm a, I'm one of the world's great procrastinators, so who knows?
1: Something to do if and when you retire. Yeah, yeah,
2: so. yeah. Well, that's yeah. not on the cards yet.
1: Um, hobbies? What do you do to wind down? Because the news can be quite yeah. overwhelming after a Yeah, while.
2: I well, exercise-wise, I walk, swim, and cycle. Yep. Not like recycle basket-on-bike-cycle, <laughs> and uh, but go, still go places. Yeah. And uh, I read, and cooking is a huge passion. Okay.
1: Huge. So if, if you were to have uh, people around for dinner, what's mm-hmm. what's your go-to dish or, or your um, go-to cuisine?
2: Well, I love Middle Eastern food. Yeah. Really, really like it. Um, I love the sort of healthy food. I love that Mediterranean rim, mm-hmm. but then I love Asian food as well. I'll, I'll cook anything. Yep. I really will. I'll, I, I love experimenting. I love experimenting for friends.
1: Yeah, it's good. How how much longer do you think you're going to do it? Well, who knows? <laughs>
2: who knows? Um, Have you
1: ever been close to thinking? Okay, I think I'm I'm ready for retirement no, or, or next phase of life.
2: Look, it, it the years go so quickly. Yeah. And while you feel good and you enjoy the work and it's being successful, there's not much reason to not do it. And that's where I am at the moment. I still love it. We're we're doing well in the ratings. Um, everything's going well. So it's a changing world. It sure mm. is. I mean, you know what television is like now. Free-to-air television is a very different beast, but they're all adapting. They're all going online. So um, as long as the... Look, who knows where it's going to be in five years? It could be an entirely different industry.
1: Well, who knows? I mean, the crystal ball gazing is a dangerous game to play these days.
2: And so many people, younger people these days, don't watch television as such. They watch it on devices. But then the devices are making free-to-air more accessible. So you can choose your programs when you want them, but people are still watching news, which is great. Mm. I don't know quite. Just
1: consuming it perhaps uh, through a different medium.
2: May, maybe, and I think also because you can get so much international news online that, but you can't get the local news to the degree that we can and we have the reputation for being totally across anything that's happening in Perth. Mm. So that's very much where our focus is now, more so than ever before, mm. I
1: think. Can I ask you just about uh, the, the loss of one of your dear colleagues? Yeah. Um, some time ago, Chris main mm. uh, What was it like being in the newsroom having to deal with that tragedy?
2: I, If anyone ever asks me what was the hardest bulletin I've ever read, it's that one, Yeah, hands down. Yep. It really is because when you put a personal connection in there, it just makes it so hard and it was so unexpected. And Chris lived around the corner from me. He was such a great guy. I used to give him some voice lessons and he used, he used to ring me every now and again and say his, his lovely wife, Rani, would say, Oh, Chris, the boy from Geraldton's coming out a bit more. You need to talk to Sue again. (laughs) And he'd say, I need to get that Geraldton under control. And and we'd go and we'd do a few voice lessons and things. And, look, he was the most generous person. And when Chris died, the people who came out of the woodwork saying, he's done this for me, I wrote to him about my grandmother, he went and saw her, all these individual things that nobody knew he did, he was a genuinely generous and warm Mm -hmm. person. Yep. and fantastic and not the greatest broadcaster in the world but a good broadcaster because he had, he had the sports background behind him and mm. he had the heart for it.
1: And people loved him. They loved he, him and he, he was, was very lovable. He was real, he was lovable mm. and he was a great player. Yeah, he was, that too. <laughs> so unfortunately we've run out of time. Thank you for coming in. We'll have to uh, keep an eye for this book that you might eventually get around (laughs) to writing.
2: It'll be a while. But Thank you very
1: much and uh, long may your success continue. Thank you. However long you want it to, I suspect.
2: Well, we'll see.
1: We'll see. So thank you. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. This one is brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another
0: WA Inspiring Story. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors.
1: Want to witness the world's
0: biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 two semi-finals. all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.